Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm joined today by my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up? What's up? I am excited to be here, as always, and I'm excited to talk about this movie, because this movie is worth watching. We say that a lot. This movie is worth watching. For sure. Well, and some of them, it's like you may have seen, like you've seen Back to the Future, or you've seen Lord of the Rings, but like I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this movie. So part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was to talk about it and inspire you to see this movie. And what is um, this movie today? This movie is The Fablemans, the and we needed to bring the big guns out to talk about The Fablemans. And so we have a legendary director, one of my best friends, famous people, brilliant movie mind production company owner and all-around genius, uh, Luke Bolin. Luke, welcome to the show. Hello, old friend. You're too kind. Yeah, man. I'm excited to have you here because I think as a you know filmmaker, as a storyteller, you're going to have some uh, great takes on this. And I want us to really wrestle it to the ground of like, what is this movie? What does it mean? <laughs> Why is it significant? And to talk about this movie, I think we have to talk about Steven Spielberg. Um, obviously, really? you think? <laughs> you think? I'm that's, like, that's let's talk about Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on Billy Wilder? Uh, no, we got to talk about Spielberg, uh, but not just like about him, but I think about his place in movie history. And so my opening question is this. I like to open with almost an unanswerable question. Sure. I was listening to Die Hard and, you know, we did, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? That's one debate, but we've done, you know, what's Titanic? Is it a romance movie or is it a deep tragedy? Those sort of unanswerable questions. This one today may be the most unanswerable question we've ever had, which is where does Spielberg rank in all time directors? Like if you're giving me a list of like the all time directors, is he the greatest? Is he the 10th greatest? Is he the 20th greatest? Where are you putting him on the list? This is such an unanswerable question, and it's actually the perfect Rob Stennett question, because not only is it unanswerable, but it's also a totally arbitrary list. So this is like the sweet spot for Rob Stennett opening questions. So now, okay, I'm going to clarify your question real fast. <laughs> is this objective <laughs> director of all time? Like... For the world, or is this like a personal feeling about experiences with movies and the directors? Let's say I'm a Hollywood billionaire and I opened a Hollywood museum and I'm like, hey, at this Hollywood museum, we're going to make all the directors and we're going to put them from one to ten. Where do you put Spielberg, uh, Mr. Harmon? Like, where are you putting him there at my Hollywood museum? Right. And you would be the person to open that museum. I, I, uh, I plan on doing this later this year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So this is this maybe is, 2023. I'm not going to get ambitious, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. We we do have about 14 days left in the year. Um, okay, if we're opening a museum, geez, I must say at number two. Mm, why? Why number two? I'm going to say number two because for me, I think he's clearly in the top five directors of all time. No question about it. If you're opening a museum, I think you have to think about people who are like iconic and sort of like left an imprint across the hundred plus years of movie history that we have. I think he's certainly done that, making some of the biggest movies from the 70s on. Like he's got gigantic, iconic movies in at this point five decades. That's huge. 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. From Jaws to Indiana Jones to uh, Jurassic Park dramas like Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, right? Like he's definitely at his heyday in the 90s. I would say probably the only most iconic director that I, I think I could potentially put on top of him would be Hitchcock, simply mm. because of sort of the place he holds in the mythos of movie making. I like that answer. All right, Luke, what you got? Where are you so, ranking him? You know what? Spielberg was probably number one, number two on my list up until like, honestly, Crystal Skull. It was Indiana Jones and Chris. I was so disappointed and let down by that movie. But before that, literally, it's like Munich, War of the Worlds, Terminal, Catch Me If You Can, Minority Report. I mean, like one right after the other of just amazing films, right? He was like untouchable almost. And then- he makes Crystal Skull, which any Indiana Jones fan is going to say it was just a total mess. And I don't know if it's George Lucas or whatever, but like, I don't want to get sidetracked here. I think <laughs> I placed this, him. This is, this is not a Crystal Skull podcast. <laughs> no, it's not. But but Spielberg, like literally he had like number one, number two slot in my mind. I don't know. There was something about like every movie that he was producing after that just didn't have the same magic as he used to. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true, because if you think about what he's done in in the last decade, um, I would say uh, West Side Story is a huge return to form for him. But sort of prior to West Side Story, it's a lot of things that maybe not a lot of people have seen or I wasn't necessarily that excited to see. Like right. Ready Player One was fine. The BFG was like fine. Right. But yeah. like nothing that people are like thinking about or writing home about. And it's been almost 10 ish years. Right. He's almost kind of like more of a producer, sort of greatest of all time emeritus. Right. right. Almost feel like he he hadn't retired, but was kind of definitely in the background. So this is the reason I brought up this question is because I wanted to force us to talk about the last 20 years of Spielberg. And I think to put him in context, okay, we did an episode on The Shining. Stanley Kubrick, who I think is also in this Hollywood Hall of Fame that Andrew is curating somewhere in that one to 10. Stanley Kubrick is there, right? Sure. In 1980, Stanley Kubrick makes The Shining. In 1987, Stanley Kubrick makes Full Metal Jacket. That's like, you know, seven, eight year gap. In that same gap, can I tell you what Steven Spielberg made? He directed Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Twilight Zone the movie, he did one of the shorts in it, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Color Purple, Amazing Stories, Empire of the Sun. That's what he directed. Yeah. He produced in that same period poltergeist which many people think he actually directed instead of toby hooper you can do a great like youtube deep dive on that he produced et he produced gremlins he produced the goonies he produced back to the future the color purple the money pit an american tale harry and the hendersons <laughs> inner space and empire of the sun in that same stretch that kubrick made zero movies that is what spielberg did it is mind-blowing unbelievable that sort of stretch yeah. especially harry and the Andersons. I, mean, <laughs> I mean he's such a pro prolific filmmaker not just director but producer obviously as well and has inspired so many other filmmakers like jj uh, J. abrams is uh deeply inspired by spielberg for and, sure uh, and we love that i mean that's one of the things that i really love about jj abrams films like um super eight is just uh, his right. homage to spielberg right and i think the thing that he does so well is the 1950s right he just nails that era and anytime Spielberg does anything within the 50s, it's just like iconic Spielberg. And I think a lot of directors have like this moment where they're kind of like 
amazing. Maybe it's like a five year period where this is the very best of them, which was a little bit why I was struggling to answer the, the question, because I've got several directors that have these moments, the prestige through inception phase of Christopher Nolan, like yeah. is incredible. Like I right. would hold that up to any director of of all time. Danny Boyle from like 28 Days Later through Slumdog Millionaire. There was like a couple years there where I loved everything he was doing. Now I'm like, I would never put Danny Boyle in one of the greatest directors of all time. I was like, but, I did not expect Danny Boyle in this conversation. Right. Like, but I, think there's, there, but, I think there's a lot of kudos, a lot directors that, that have this like moment yeah, where, yeah, where, they're, yeah. where they're like, they're doing something incredibly special right now. Right. Spielberg has six of those moments so here's my case for spielberg being number one his run from 1975 starting with jaws to 1998 ending with saving private ryan i feel like is an untouchable run like where he's making all these movies he's producing them all and then he makes jurassic park and schindler's list in the same year it's like the all-time like walk-off year (laughs) pick any athlete it's like winning NBA championship and the World Series in the same year. It's like undoable. Like no one's ever going to have a year like Spielberg did in 1993. Again, I don't think. And there was like a a stretch in there in the mid 90s where Spielberg was doing that, where he would do like a fun movie like Jurassic Park and then he'd do some deep drama. Uh, He did Munich and World of Worlds in the same year. Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can came out in 2002. Right. I mean, those are like two totally different genres to different styles but like but also like best in class movies right like yeah, when you really think are. of like really sci-fi are. thriller minority reports definitely in the top 10 top 5 yeah. probably it's a great movie so here's the thing though about spielberg i'm going to read another list which is this lost world 1010 crystal skull ready player 1 warhorse the bfg the terminal Stanley Kubrick never makes anything close to that bad. You know, like he he never makes a 1010 or even a Hitchcock or, you know, like a Scorsese. Like they never make bad movies like that. And so I think what's interesting about Spielberg is he's such a volume shooter like we talk about, like making these movies, you know, two movies in the same year. But he makes some pretty bad movies like Crystal Skull was like in my life. I don't know if I've ever had a more disappointing thing in the theater where I was like, this feels like a student film and I can't believe like how bad it is, how confusing it is. And I was like, how does Spielberg make this? Like you said, Luke, like how does this happen on his watch? Yeah. You bring up a good point. Like I I was thinking about the the terminal. So are you about to defend the terminal? I'm about to defend the terminal. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But listen, I, there was moments in that movie that I really liked and, and I think I was trying to like it so much because it was Spielberg. Yeah. Actually, I enjoyed world of the worlds personally, but I like world of the worlds, but I think the terminal is a bad movie. I think like you think looking back on it now, I'm just like, I don't know. It's him in an airport with a bad accent and he's just, it's just like, so I haven't seen seen it since the theater. I don't think so. So here's the thing with that, with that list that you just gave us, Rob, is maybe outside of Crystal Skull, I would say that whole list of like bad movies aren't necessarily like disasters. We're not talking about like a M. Night Shyamalan situation where you've got great movies like Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and he makes inc- some great movies and then just sure. disasters. We're not talking about Lady in the Water or The Happening. 
right? We're not talking about like, what am I watching? This is insane how bad this is. I think the movies that you listed there, with maybe the exception of The Crystal Skull, are all like movies that are like, okay, that was fine. Right. Right. Like right. Ready Player One isn't a terrible movie. It's a movie that I wouldn't watch again, but it was fine. And I would say that's where I would put most of those movies that you just just listed. The Terminal isn't like horrible, but it's like fine. And I think he has and maybe more recently has kind of a stable of movies that are just fine that you wouldn't necessarily watch again, but maybe didn't feel like you totally wasted your money. So the whole reason I did this question was because I feel like I've had what you just described, Luke, of like, I saw the terminal and I'm like trying to talk myself into it being a good movie is the, the experience that I had. And I've had that experience for so many films where I'm like, oh, maybe Ready Player One's good. And I'm like, ah, no, it's not good. The Fablemans, I feel like is Steven Spielberg's best movie since Saving Private Ryan for me. Like, and it's it's not even close. I'm like, oh, I thought he was done. I thought he was cooked. I thought he lost his fastball. And then I was like, no, there's something here that he hasn't done for a long, long time. And that made me want to like stand up and applaud. It made me come to life. And so that's, I think, why this conversation is interesting for me. And so I'm like, man, the old man still has it. Like there's something here to this movie. I think it's interesting that you put the end of Spielberg's like heyday or good movies at Saving Private Ryan. I think that's maybe the last iconic one. But in this conversation, we've kicked all the way up through early Munich. 2000s, like five yeah. years later uh, with sure. Catch Me If You Can, Munich, Minority Report. Those are all still great movies. Those aren't in Terminal Ready Player One category yet. So maybe not the heights of Saving Private Ryan, but he was still yeah. definitely swinging and hitting doubles and triples. I feel like you could say 2002, you know, like, again, it's such a great year. Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. Right, yeah. But E.T., Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park. These are movies that are like in the Hollywood Museum, right? Like this museum, right. this fake museum that we're making. Great I mean, they're there when it. it's like, hey, I want to tell you about the greatest movies that you have to see. Sure. Like Jurassic Park is on that list. You know, E.T. is on that list. Right. Jaws is on that list. Um, right. Or Catch Me If You Can, like. Yeah, maybe like it's it's good. I mean, it's a great hang, but I don't know if it's like, oh, we're teaching this in film school like you have to see this. Fair enough. But yeah, th this is an interesting return to form. And I could talk for hours about West Side Story and how to me that is Spielberg's comeback moment, because I think that movie is absolute magic front to back. But The Fablemans is a wildly different movie than that, or really, I think, anything that's, that Steven Spielberg has made. It doesn't feel particularly Spielberg-y in its genre or content. Um, it's not adventurous. It's not kind of having a fun glint in its eye wink at you here and there where you feel sort of charmed. There are moments of that, but it is um, a deeply moving movie. Really, really interesting. Completely worth seeing. I'd love to dive into it. Like, let's let's talk about this movie. Where did you, how did you feel about the movie, Luke? I had some mixed feelings, to be honest. Um, I really liked 80% of it. I, I felt like it was two movies, to be honest. Mm, fair enough. Where do you think that split is at? Do you oh, think crap. it's just... So it's totally intentional. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that, but it's totally at the divorce. Yeah. I think. Something that I loved about it that I think makes it feel different than a lot of other movies that we talk about, or maybe even other Spielberg movies, is that I think structurally it's not set up sort of in a typical act structure like we would see in a lot of movies like, you know, Jurassic Park, where, you know, you get to the island, meet the the danger, monsters get out, have to fix it, denouement. 
this is much more of like just a long extended series of slice of life events um, right. that to me was very reminiscent structurally of a movie like Boyhood, which obviously very same genre. It's like a long coming of age story. Right. But in that idea of like, I don't know where we're at in the plot sequence or the structural sequence of this movie. I can't feel, OK, we're about ready to come to the big climax that's then going to set us off into the final battle, right? Like this movie doesn't have that. You're just watching scenes of characters' lives progressing towards some not end, just some stopping point. And right. I, I found that very interesting for Spielberg to attack a movie like this in this way. So here's the thing. I feel like the central tension at the core of this movie is, and it's an awkward movie for Spielberg to make, right? Totally. But in my mind, Spielberg is, if he's not the greatest director ever, I think he's the greatest significant force in filmmaking history. There has been no person who has impacted the way movies are made, consumed, produced, franchised, like yeah, Reese's Pieces and E.T. to, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark being a whole series. He invented the PG-13 with Temple of Doom. Like, like his thumbprint on movies has been so powerful. And that's the foundation of this story. This was my number one movie of the year that when I heard this, I was like, I want to see what this is because I wanted Spielberg to like literally turn the camera on himself and like, why do I do what I do? You know, and he's kind of making this biopic, which can be kind of fraught, like awkward because it's like, oh, like, is it navel gazing? Is it promoting himself? But I didn't get that sense at all. I felt more like it was like therapy. Like he was really like, why did I have the career that I had? Why did I make the movies that I made? What is this? And so to me, that central question, like tied the whole movie together into ways that were really interesting because on it, like, Luke, you talk about it being split in two, but I almost see it like I, I do think Boyhood is a great comparison, Andrew, where it's like moving and acts, right? Like it's just like, right. okay, now's him as a kid. Okay, now is him in Arizona, right? You know, these like different movements and moments. But at the core of it, what like kept me at the edge of my seat and why this is one of my favorite movies of the year is it like what created the most influential Hollywood mind that we have? And that's what the story is about. Yeah, there's so many interesting moments and parts throughout that. I think that idea of viewing this movie as several different slices of, of life that maybe don't even all impact towards the end. Luke, you saying this movie felt sort of split in two, that the beginning is more about one thing and something more about yeah. and the end is, is more sort of focused on something else. And I think the thing that felt refreshing to me about that is that is a little bit what life is like, right? Like if this was a little bit more Hollywoodized, it would have ended with him making a train movie. Some movie with a train crash would have sure, been the like yeah. the end of the movie to show this big kind of poetic book ending. And it doesn't do that because that's not really how life really works, right? Like things happen and then other events happen and some of those events trickle over into the next event and you have bigger arcs that impact more of your life, like in this, like his parents. But, you know, there's other little characters that just like drop in and out like Judd Hirsch, like he's there and he's gone and he had an impact yeah. on one little moment in his life. And then that's kind of it. And there's something about that that I feel is very relatable of like this feels a little bit more like how life works. Absolutely. Well, I think we should like we're talking around the movie. Let's talk about the movie. Normally we do like what's the most meaningful scene. But because of the way this movie is structured, I actually wrote down six scenes that I was like, I want to talk about these six scenes and see what you guys think. And I think that's it'll kind of flesh out all the themes. 
And so the first one is it opens, he's in the car, and his mom kind of explains to him that movies are dreams. He goes and sees his first movie, the big Cecil B. DeMille movie that he sees, and then he, it freaks him out. And then uh, he makes his own film about the train crash. What were your feelings or thoughts about that sequence, Andrew? To me, that was the closest that this movie gets to sort of the like classic Hollywood, almost superhero origin story. Yeah. Him going to the movies with his parents and then being a little scared by it, maybe like it felt very like Batman to me. Mm, Batman and his parents going to the theater and then that's this formative experience that then like sets him off. But I mean, that opening scene has so much great stuff. It sets up uh, his mom and dad. I love the speech that his dad gives about like what a movie is. And he like breaks it down to like, well, it's 24 frames a second, but your eye is only able to see this. And so it feels like the picture is moving because blah, 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 which is actually for a much older person who's really into it kind of interesting but to the kid it just like completely goes over him and you sort of see this dad character who's not quite capable of connecting to the imagination of his son and then the mom is just like movies or dreams boom and and so you see these two influences on his life and it's such a great encapsulation of where we're going with that first opening little speech and those two influences are the foundation for Absolutely. Steven Spielberg, right? Yeah. So like Lost, TV show Lost, which I talk about a lot because I love, uh, there's Jack and Locke. And Jack is like the man of science and Locke is the man of faith. And I feel like that's what this whole movie is. It's like dad is the man of science. He's the guy who's going to explain all the technical details. And if you know about Spielberg, part of what makes him a genius is he is a genius. He's literally like inventing camera techniques. He's doing stuff with light that no one else has done before. He is uh, what he does in Jurassic Park. I mean, making dinosaurs look real. Like he is literally making magic, but he's using it with science. But then he's also heart, right? Like there's this artist with him. It's sentimental. It's John Williams scores. So that kind of scientist and that artist are at the soul of who he is. And, you know, but Paul Dano and Michelle Williams are giving voice to that in the whole movie. For sure. I think that's how that o- sort of opening sequence of the train starts out with that sort of intro to these characters that are going to be his sort of guiding force. But then the him like needing the train, wanting to film it and then editing it together and doing all that stuff. It was a really beautiful scene that I think a lot of artists have, or at least they sort of create a myth for themselves about their childhood of I saw this movie and then I picked up a camera and I was watching that. And for me, also being an an artist and a storyteller and filmmaker to to some degree, I was like, I wish I had this. And I was like watching this and I was like, there isn't this in my life where I had this one formative experience where then little kid me picked up a camera and started running around. And I was like. I've heard about so many other people who have this as a part of their life that like I am jealous of this thing. But I think that's like a very typical part of like an artist's at least myth about themselves that they believe or something that they hold up about their childhood of these moments of play that then become this thing they can't let go of. That's interesting, Andrew. Honestly, there's a lot of nuggets there. But but really, I mean, I can pinpoint one the time I was in college, but like when I felt like this was what I needed to do with my life. But yeah, I think that's so cool when like people like have those and and to see one of the greatest records of all time, like show you his. Hey, this is the yeah. thing. One thing I thought was kind of funny about that opening scene was like you have these two parents that are trying to convince their kid to go to this movie, right? I can't tell you many times I've tried to like convince my kids like, no, 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 it's going to be a fun, funny, whatever, if they're like a little bit scared or whatever. And, and, you know, convincing them, hey, this is going to be a fun movie. 
and they're like, it's going to have elephants in the circus. And then it's like a train crash and it's, uh, you know, terrifying, which I loved to me. That's that's when I was hooked in. That's when I was like, this movie's more interesting yeah. than just like, oh, movies are magic. I'm going to make magic. I, he I was like, agree more, holy I, crap. This yeah. stuff is scary. You should not submit a child to that. What are you doing? And he starts making movies not because, oh, I want to do something magical. He starts making movies because he's like, these things are terrifying. And so I want to like open up the closet and see how the monster actually lives. And that way I don't have to be afraid of the monster anymore. Well, and so I'm curious what you guys think about that, because I think that is his mom's explanation of like it scares him. And so he needs control over it. And so he, he right. wants to see it like that's her kind of like psychoanalytic explanation of why he's doing what he's doing. But he never really says that. And I think that's a piece of it. But I think it's this weird tension that I think we we often have a lot of artists have a lot of people have of the thing that scares you a little bit also totally fascinates you. I'm not sure that Sammy is ever actually fully terrified of that train crash so much as mesmerized by it. Um, I think there is an element of fear and an element of fascination. And I think those two are from the jump in tension with each other the whole time and he he just can't let go of it it's not that he's trying to conquer the nightmare so much as he has to make sense of the fascination in his head the moment when he he sets up the train and he kneels down and is looking down the eyes yes the, the perspective of the track it was like that was the moment that spielberg realized he needed to see this from this angle, from this perspective, this is what, this is the shot, right? To me, that was so apparent of like him being like, this was the first time I could actually see something from the movie. I could see the movie in my mind. I could see it right in front of me. Yes. He wanted to keep crashing it over and over again. But part of the thing is, I think it was because he wanted to relive that moment over and over again. He wanted to see that part of the film, that with that action, that tension, whatever that was that made yeah. him excited Well, when you see him framing that shot, I mean, it's like watching Michael Jordan get the basketball and all of a sudden he swishes and he realizes what a basketball is. To me, it was such a thrilling moment where it's like, oh, he comes to life and he becomes Spielberg. That's exactly it. And there's this savantness to him, right? This like, I know exactly where to put the camera. I mean, Spielberg was making stuff at like 19 had a seven picture or seven year deal to make TV movies, you know, like that was his film school. And so he is like this kind of savant. And I think this movie taps into it. But what I love most about this movie and why I think it's worth talking about, especially with you guys, is it is therapy a little bit because it's like, what is art? What is creating art? And what, how do you bring your own personal story into the things that you create? And that's such a big universal theme and I've rarely seen a film wrestle with it in more interesting ways than The Fablemans. For sure. And I think the relationship with his parents is, like we've said, the core to that, probably the most difficult thing for him to talk about, as it is the most personal and most revealing uh, thing. But it is the central heart of this film. Um, there's another really important scene that comes a little bit later when they all go camping and um, his mom starts like dancing in, in the headlights. I, I would say that's like the next most pivotal scene in the movie when it comes to like meaningful scenes. Luke, what'd you think of that scene? Mom camping? The the thing I thought was interesting was, was the daughter kind of coming in to cover her mom and protect her. And Sammy pushes her out of the way because he wants to get the shot because it's important. 
But it's such an interesting scene from so many different perspectives because you've got his dad's perspective. You've got Uncle Benny's perspective. And you're seeing for the first time right in front of you this affair kind of taking place between the three of them. But she's also just making herself vulnerable and transparent and whatever. The son still didn't see it at that point. He was just trying to capture the beauty of the moment. You've been on set, right? I mean, we've all been on set. When you're trying to get a shot and you're putting your camera there and you're looking at the lights and you're looking at the exposure and you're trying to get it all the way through, you're just trying to capture something magical. And I think that's all he was laser locked in is like, this is my mom. This is magical. And I felt like a couple things were being born there. One, Spielberg's use of light, which I just adore, you know, like and all these different movies from, you know, Close Encounters to... Whatever say, else that man knows how to backlight a shot, right? All the yeah. way through West Side Story and the Fablemans, you know, it's it's in everything. And J.J. Abrams has, you know, been parodied because he's been influenced by it so much. But I felt like the Spielberg backlighting the shot was born in that moment. Yeah. Um. And then yeah, the daughter who who does such great. I think it's Julia Butters, and she's from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's in it, and she does an incredible job. And yeah, you see the two men who are like in love with her for different reasons. But like, you know, the dad could have stopped it as well. The dad could have been like, no, no, this is inappropriate. Well, you know why he didn't stop it to me is because this is a woman who makes dinner. And what does she do when dinner's over? She puts all of dinner on plastic dishes and plastic forks and a plastic tablecloth. And she throws it all away. This is a woman who has no interest whatsoever and being kind of a 1950s housewife, like that right. is soul killing to her. And the reason that they give it is like, oh, her fingers, she has piano fingers. And so she doesn't want to like ruin her hands. But she's kind of like became a housewife on accident to me, where what she really is is an artist. And that dad sees it in that moment and like, oh, her soul is alive. Like, don't mess with this because. She goes to dark places often. We have to find moments where she's really alive and this is mm. happening here. Yeah, yeah. that bit there at the end, I, th- I think for sure, one of the most interesting <clears throat> things I think about the father character and the way that Paul Dano plays it is I don't feel the tension between those two characters. I think a different version of this movie, maybe a worse version of this movie, would be those two characters fighting about their perspectives on life, right? Is that she's too carefree. She's too dreamy. She's too much of an artist. And he's too much of a stickler and too much in the weeds. Like there isn't that, like their arguments aren't about that, right? Right. Their arguments are about other kind of bigger existential things. Mm -hmm. And you can see like that they fully kind of from the jump accept each other for the beauty that is who they are, right? She loves the fact that he's a genius. She never gets on him about that. And I think he loves the fact that she is this imaginative, dreamy artist. He loves that about her. That's not a problem to him. And so in this instance where she's revealing herself probably too much, he sees this beauty in her and that's okay. He's not going to stop that because that's the thing he loves about her and that to me made those two characters so much more interesting than how I think a more typical version of that tension would have been played on screen. Yeah, it didn't dip into melodrama. It didn't dip into like, you know, oh this and you've been having an affair or whatever else. There's this kind of much more like quiet desperation yeah, to yeah. all of the characters and what they want and what they need. Absolutely. And so we have all these quiet characters who are like pensive or thoughtful or like free floating artistic and then Judd Hirsch Uncle Judd comes. I forget what his character's name is. I'll look it yeah. up in a second. But I think it's Uncle, Uncle Judd. Judd. It's Uncle <laughs> Boris, I think. Un- Uncle no. Boris. Yeah, Boris. <laughs> it's such a great. 
he comes in just with a flamethrower, and he's just, every every single line, he's giving his all, he's going for it. It was one of my favorite parts of the movie, pretty much everything he said and did. Um, but Andrew, what did you think of him and his performance? Well, first, yeah, first of all, J- Judd Hirsch's performance in this, I think, is so kind of atypical for Judd Hirsch. He's, like, almost always the, like... <laughs> Someone has asked me before when I mentioned Judd Hirsch, I worked on a movie that he was in and they're like, who's that? And I was like, uh, the the Jewish father in any movie you've ever seen. It's (laughs) it's Judd Hirsch. Um, And so normally he plays like a little bit snarky, kind of like the the character he plays in Independence Day, where he's Jeff Goldblum's dad. Right. That's the standard Judd Hirsch. But he's never kind of like off the rails, like angry, grumpy like he is in in this movie. This is like a very big performance for him, which I think was really fun to see him in this kind of like um, super grouchy kind of fiery character. He he normally doesn't go there, but he he comes in at such an important point in the movie. And I think sets the movie off for Sammy's character in a fully new direction, sort of unlocks the thing that Sammy wants to be. And there's a couple moments that uh, play into it. And one is sort of a throwaway line that to me was one of the most important lines in the whole film that just happens over the dinner table. And he's telling some story about his, his, his life. And one of the daughters says, are you lying? Paul Dano's character, the dad says, no, he's telling a story. He doesn't say whether he's lying or not. He doesn't qualify whether or not what's being told is true. He says it's not a lie. It's a story. That's so great. And to me, and it's just a throwaway line in the, in the middle of a scene. But to me, I was like, that is almost the meaning of this movie. Not yeah. quite, but sort of. And it's this idea of like sometimes when we tell stories about our lives, the truth isn't as important. Like the truth of the events we're talking about isn't necessarily as important as the meaning and the story that we're painting about what we either want to be true or what that reveals about us. Um, the movie Big Fish, a Tim Burton movie, is that theme for two hours. But it was really interesting to see Paul Dano's character, the science guy, understand that and throw that out in the middle of a conversation yeah. of whether or not this is true isn't important. It might be a, quote, lie, but it's not because it's a story. There and may that's have been- what's important. Eight different Judd Hirsch's in Steven Spielberg's life, right? Like this movie right. is not called the Spielbergs; it's called <laughs> the Fablemans. Yep. And there may have been several, there may have been professors and a few different people who kind of gave those sort of speeches to Spielbergs. But I think he wraps it up all in one character because that's what you have to do in a movie, right? Sure. And he kind of gives becomes that force in nature, but he very much clearly articulates. And if you've been an artist long enough and a creative long enough, someone comes into your life. And says, here's how it is. Right. And the other thing that's so interesting about him is because he's what Paul Dano is afraid of. Paul <laughs> Dano is afraid, my son is going to become an artist. He's going to go off to the circus. He's going to be sleeping on floors and tearing his shirts. He's yeah. going to become a crazy man. There's a reliable career. My son is clearly brilliant. And he can have a reliable career in computers. Or he can go make films and probably fail at it. And become just like his crazy Uncle Boris. And so I think those are the two things like Uncle Boris sees something in Sammy Fableman that no one else does. And he's also a threat. I mean, the mom literally gets a phone call in the middle of the night from a spirit, maybe. And says, I mean, does she don't let him in? (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, but so but that speech that um, that the Boris character that Judd Hirsch um, as Uncle Uncle Boris gives to Sammy in his in his bedroom about what it means to be an artist 
that is so core to the soul of this of this movie. Right. I think it's because it was like you can be close to your art or close to your family and you have to choose one or the other. And us artists are like lonely people in a way that the rest of the world doesn't understand. And I think as an artist, as someone who's created, as someone who like has a movie podcast and they're like, you have a movie podcast and you just talk about movies? Like why? There's current events, there's politics. Like aren't there things more important than movies? And I'm like, no, like uh, no. Art, <laughs> art is the most important thing. And so seeing that character who sees it in him and sees that war that's going to go on him. And he's like, this war is going to go on for the rest of your life of like family and responsibility versus your art. Yeah. And, you know, we're all married, not to each other. We have different individual lives, but we're all married. We have each one of us have families <laughs> and um, we know the the tension between those things. And this movie, like nails it down which is like there's always going to be a war against your family and your art and the way he kind of like i'm moving my hands because he keeps making this x as he talks about it and it was just so powerful to me and i love the the fact that he doesn't again a worse version of this movie would have had him say like would have had a character that would have been like don't be an artist because you'll have to reject your family, right? They'll frame the lack of relationship in your life as a bad thing, which right. to be fair, you know, not having deep relationship is is a bad thing, right? But Uncle Boris doesn't. He just says like this is reality. I see this in you and this is and this is this is going to happen, right? He doesn't judge him for not wanting to cut together the camping video because he wants to go shoot his war movie. He's he's not saying you're a bad person because of that. He's saying you're an artist and of course you want this and this is the effect. And he just kind of like, I mean, he's fiery and grumpy about it, but he sort of just lays it out as like fact of like this. This is is, is your life. Now let's go to bed. Luke, I have a question for you. Yeah. As we're talking about this movie, are you more convinced like, oh, this is a great movie? Or are you still like out on this? You're like, eh, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I think I think. Yes, I will say yes. I'm I, I'm definitely leaning more towards this is a good movie. Um, <laughs> not just the me. Um, I, it didn't, it honestly, it didn't strike me as much as it did you the first, on the first viewing. I need to go back and watch it again now that we've talked. Like you said, I, I think all the scenes that we're talking about, all these moments in the movie were by far, I think the most impactful, meaningful parts. Once one part that's not, not on this list that I would like to maybe just a little side. Go side for it. Conversation is, is the, the scenes where he's filming his films, like his, his, uh, as a kid, you know, yeah. I just thought they were so, so great. Um, and, and you get those little glimpses of Indiana Jones, you get those little glimpses of the action, you know, uh, and, and you see the incredible influence of Ford in his, uh, in, in his films, you know? Yeah. And John Ford was his Steven Spielberg, you know, like right. not only to him, but to a whole generation. Mm -hmm. Um, right. But I want to get back to his filmmaking in a moment. But one thing that all this leads up to is dad comes in, Paul Dano, and says, hey, you need to make a movie for your mom. You, you filmed all this stuff, and when you make a movie for your mom, it'll make it go better. And this is a true thing that Spielberg actually started cutting together a movie. And as he's cutting together a movie, that is when he had a revelation of, like, my mom is having, I mean, they never explicitly say it. But I would call it like an emotional affair. Like they're not, right. I don't even know if they're having sex. I don't know how much they're hooking up. But she's definitely like in love with this other man. 
and he's in love with her. And you just see, like, again, the show don't tell of him going and, like, this all this old, like, film and he's, like, reeling it and reeling it back and reeling it forward and snipping it and cutting it together. And just the painstaking... I mean, we've all edited stuff before. We know how how much you watch something over and over and over again. And the fact that you're doing that, and then it's dawning on you, my mom is having an affair. And then what he does is he takes her up to the closet and literally, like, sits her down and makes her watch it. And just her performance where she's kind of, like, laughing and, like, into it. And then you just see they're not showing what she's watching. You just see that, again, Spielberg right. flicker of light. And you see the devastating thing on her face. And for me, I'm like, that's as good as any scene of any movie that I've seen this year. Absolutely. That event is what sort of inspired this movie to be correct to begin with. Um, I don't know how long ago, like 10, 15 years ago, I think um, Spielberg and Tony Kushner, who co-wrote this movie with him and also wrote the uh, script for uh, West Side Story. Shout out West Side Story. Um, and also wrote Munich. I think I think Tony Kushner and uh, Spielberg are in, increasingly in my mind like these two just need to keep working together. They have they have kindred souls for sure. But he was telling Tony Kushner about this moment in his life, and Kushner said like You have to make a movie about this. This is this is a movie. Like you need to mm-hmm. write this. And he didn't want to do it until his basically his parents were dead. What's your take on that scene, Luke? So this is this is to me this is the climax of the entire film it is so good in every every facet to me this was (laughs) if there's ever a a argument for this being an amazing film it's this scene yeah um (laughs) i i just i was blown away by it honestly like the fact that you didn't see what she's seeing the fact that it's a it's a mirror of you know the first time they watched the, the film together, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that this is what they do apparently, you know, like they, (laughs) they get in the closet and they watch this film and, and Michelle Williams, when she comes out of that closet, uh, it just was brilliant. She, she crawls out, she reaches for the plug, pulls it from the wall can't even pull it on the first pull. It's like so awkward and human. Like she's trying to do it and doesn't have the strength to pull it out of the wall. Yeah. I I just, I was like, this is amazing. Like this whole scene is so raw and so just (laughs) so good. Um, I was blown away by it. So right after that scene or pretty soon after he goes and he's making that movie with his friends. Right. Yeah. And he tells the one actor, it's the one time you really see Spielberg, the director of actors in this movie. And he tells him like this whole scene of like what his character is going through, which is like he's been betrayed, but he doesn't know he's been betrayed. And like and then the actual shot that they show in the movie is just the kid keeps walking and he never he never swings around and cuts to his face. And the kid keeps walking. They're calling cut and the kid doesn't hear it because he's in like such a like manic (laughs) space. It, it was it was it was such like a magical little scene. It was sort of even just kind of like a breath of fresh air in the middle of all of the family drama. But there's so many little things that go on in that scene. Like you were saying, you get, you get to see Spielberg directing actors for the first time. But also the fact that he turns this kid who's just there to make a war movie. And the, and the kid goes like, what, you want me to act? And Spielberg is like, yeah. Right. And then right. they he tells him this story that gets this kid, both of them in tears. They're both surprised by it. And so the, now they're going to shoot this big emotional acting scene. But then when they hit the the wide shot, all of the kids, like all of the dead bodies, like there's not enough of them. 
And so they all have to stand up and run around the back of the camera. And they're like, all right, we have to be the dead bodies over here now. (laughs) Right. And so in this big dramatic moment, you still have this kind of like silliness that felt very Spielberg-y. It was this like beautiful mesh of, you know, emotion with just fun, like smashed together in a single shot. So, Luke, I felt like you did watching this movie with once the divorce happened, I was like, oh, like our central tension is gone. Like there's nothing really like right. pulling me through. I loved all the stuff with him and his girlfriend. Like yeah. they go and he kind of meets this girl and then she's like, hey, you got to pray to Jesus real quick. And then he's like smooching on her. But Jesus like crucified is like looking down. Well, not just one Jesus, like, <laughs> but like 20 Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, Jesus is sexy. I was like, what? And she's kind of got a crush on Jesus. It's like Frankie Avalon and Jesus, like right next to each other. And and just this poor Jewish boy, like having to deal with all this is wonderful. And then like, but then the big tension becomes like, is he ever going to make a movie again? Because uh, Uncle Benny goes, tries to give him a camera. He doesn't want it. His whole family like sits around at dinner in that scene where he invites his girlfriend over and they're like, oh, you should make this movie. And they're all fighting over dinner and he like doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to do it. And then finally he's like, "Okay, I'm going to make a movie. And he goes to the beach and they get like yogurt and he's like putting yogurt like on people's mouths and like dropping it down on them. And I was like, what is he doing? This is so weird. And he's like filming this beach scene. And then it's like the big prom and he puts it all this whole sequence all together. They're like, "Okay." It's time for you to show your movie. So he goes, presses play, the movie shows, and it is like the best senior prom movie ever. It's got all these like magical shots of like at the beach. It feels like 60s beach blanket bingo. And then you realize that yogurt that he's throwing on people was like bird poop that was pooping down on him. And so he's using the magic of movie making, which is again, showing shots of birds in the sky and then yogurt falling down. And it gets huge cheers from the audience and you could just see it playing so well. And then the most interesting thing, like my most meaningful scene, maybe of the movie is he the bully, the guy who's been bullying him. He makes him look like he's a god. And then the guy in the hallway like stops him afterwards. And he's like, why did you do that? I mean, it's so powerful. I I, I did. <laughs> it was it's always, you, you know, you always want to see the underdog win. Right. And he just flips that whole idea on its head and makes the bully like the star and to the point of where it breaks him. He doesn't understand it. You know, Um, he has this moment of like remorse. It goes from being complete um, tension between the two of them to maybe we can't actually be friends. And he learns from this thing and, uh, you know, I'm kind of just saying the face value on this thing, but but I do think that um, that scene in the hallway that I, I still think this little wink of like maybe I'll make a movie of this someday was great. You know, yeah. And Andrew, what do you think of that sequence? The fact that like Sammy's character doesn't answer why he did it, he doesn't fully know. There is right. like an ambiguity. <clears throat> there is like an ambiguity to why he decided to do that. And the best answer that he has is he said, like, one, he he says, I didn't add anything to this movie that wasn't there, right? So, like, you did win the race. You did win the volleyball game, right? All of those looks between him and the girl who eventually get back together, right, because of watching the movie, like, that all happened. Um, And he just told the story in a compelling way, right? Um, And so he, but, so 
for starters is like he's like, I wasn't lying. Right. Like all of this was there. Um, But he also says maybe it's because it made the story better. And so you see him caring more about his art and telling a good story than he does about like revenge or making this particularly personal. He was like, I don't know why I did it. Maybe it's because it made the movie better. And so you see him valuing telling a really good story over any kind of personal vendetta. And then the fact that telling that kind of a story actually has an effect on someone's life. And I think any any of us who are storytellers, right, like that's what we want. That's like the ultimate gold, right, is is to tell a story well enough that it actually has an effect in the real world. Um, yeah, but I, you saw it on the beach, though, when he starts to put the pieces together and he's saying, I'm going to make this guy look like the hero. And you know what I mean? Like he, he gets intentional shots of the ex-girlfriend and him and he cuts it in a way that makes it like sh- she can do nothing but be in love with him now, you know? But the thing is, I don't think he's doing it to like win him over. I no. don't think he's doing it because he's like, okay, I'm going to make this movie and we're going to be friends again. I think all of these experiences, and this is where the movie turned for me again, back to great. Cause the last third, I was like, where are we going? And then that scene in the hallway, I was like, I'm freaking sold. This movie's great <laughs> because it's like all those experiences yeah. led to this kid. Who's like, I know how to find the magic and I'm going to use my personal hurts and I'm going to use everything else not to like make this navel gazing story, but make a story that the audience cheers, laughs and cries at. And so when he's like, why did you do this? And he's like, I don't know. But essentially, we do know what he's saying, which is like the camera loves you, bro. Like the other bully, (laughs) that's the skinny kid that the camera doesn't love. But you, you have that Harrison Ford like magic to you where if I put the camera on the right angle, audiences are going to respond to you. And I can't be that person in front of the camera. You are the lean, beautiful man that I need to kind of be my leading man and make the magic. And that's all that mattered. I'm using you as a prop. And that's what I did. And it's just this boom kind of mic drop of like, you were a piece of my greater thing. And that's and because the kid actually says he's like, I'm not that person. Like, I can't live up to the person that you made me be. And he's like, that's a you problem. And that whole sequence (laughs) is I just thought was breathtaking. I thought this is so interesting of a reflection of like what Spielberg does and even the effect that he's had on people like Harrison Ford. No, that's good depth guys. I like that. I honestly, like it brings back the Judd Hirsch um, conversation of, of you're an artist. And cause he, the reason why he's in the hallway is he's devastated that his girlfriend just broke up with him. Right. And so he's dealing with that rather than like dealing with the praise that's happening inside the room. Yeah, I mean, he he's there because he's like, yeah, I just created that. That's just my art. I, you know, it was it told the story, it moved it forward. That's why you you were the hero. It needed a hero. It needed a villain, right? And so he made the bully the hero, even though that he deserved. Yeah, it. he made one bully the hero and the other bully the clown. Yeah. So right. then we finally go to the end of the movie. He gets to like essentially gets invited on the CBS lot, and they're like, "Hey, do you want to meet John Ford?" Or I, they don't even say who they it just is. say so that like, they just say the greatest director yeah. of all time. And, yeah. and and to me, I was like, "Who would that be in this era?" I didn't know. I didn't know whose office he was going to walk into. I was like on the edge of my seat. I was waiting for him to meet Hitchcock. Like that's what I thought that's, it would be. Yeah, me too. 
Interesting. But of course Hitchcock is not the person who inspired Spielberg. Spielberg no. does not make Scorsese, maybe, you know, like sure. someone else like that is making Hitchcock. But that's not who Spielberg. Spielberg is John Ford. And so then he goes and like gets to meet uh, John Ford, who is played by filmmaker David Lynch, uh, who's another kind of bizarre, <laughs> amazing director. And <laughs> I just thought about if I met Steven Spielberg, like what I would say to him. And he gets this similar moment of like, what do I say to John Ford? And I loved that scene. What did you guys think of that? Well, uh, apparently every part of that, basically every part of that scene, maybe not in that exact chronology, but all of those things happened. Yeah. Like, I, I've, I've listened to interviews of, of, of Spielberg, like talking about that from John Ford walking in with lipstick kiss marks all over his face and the secretary going in and like wiping him up before Spielberg walks in to talk to him. Like every, everything about that scene basically is uh, is is real. Um, which is fantastic because it's such a like movie scene, right? That's yeah. a scene written for a movie and it all happened, which is crazy. I love that. <laughs> it was David Lynch. Like I was like, I know at, at first glance. I was like, David Lynch. I was like, it is. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I love that his advice to him was just so like, I got 30 seconds with you, dude. Like here's here. You want some advice? Here's a quick advice. Two angles. That's all you need. Horizon's boring. <laughs> End of story. He's like, tell um, me about this picture. And he's like, oh, it's got like cowboys right. and they're there like, and no, 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 they're no, no. heroic. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, yeah, he does it. like, he's trying to sound smart, trying to sound like, like he knows what he's talking about, whatever. And he's like, no, there's only one thing. Where's the horizon? He's like at the bottom and he's like, okay, good. Next picture. And then he starts doing it again. He's like, well, this is really a picture about like war and yeah. long. And he's like, no, 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 no. Where's the horizon? He's like, at the top. He's like, all right, horizon at the bottom, good. Horizon at the top, good. Horizon in the middle, crappy movie. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Which, which which I love because I think like again, we need those people in our lives. Artists need need needs of people because Spielberg is a great storyteller, right? He goes in, he sees a static painting, and he's talking all about the characters that are in it, who 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 they are, but he's not necessarily thinking about cinematography. He's not thinking yeah. about the the frame and the like the the actual fine art of it and he needed someone to be like hey you're not thinking about cinematography you're you're not thinking about the horizon line so like forget about the thing that you're a savant at and think about this for a second and that has stuck with him his his whole life right which is which is like you know how many of those other little moments of people throwing out those things at him or when you think about ourselves right like those those moments where the thing you're not thinking about that you need to now start thinking about you're at that stage that so you need to start thinking about the new thing um it's 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 cool to like see see that moment and then yeah, the final I, shot of the movie but i started th- i started off. to think about as all, like all the the Spielberg films that I could, all the iconic shots, and and I don't, I can't think of one that has the horizon in the middle. That's like <laughs> right, that, right. You know, so it's like wow, he really took that to me. That that very last shot, amazing. The, the, you're leave, you're left with. I was like, I I couldn't decide if I was like if it was too much like a da 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 da. You know what I mean? It felt almost like too much of a joke because it was too. It it didn't feel like it was a complete part of the full movie, that little joke at the end. But at the same time, I was like, it, it was very, it, it was almost felt like you were watching uh, like uh, a live documentary. Like, this is my life, you know, and I'm going to prove it with my signature at the end here. You know what I mean? I think that last shot 
is one that could very much fall flat and be like, I don't know what this is or just be magic. For me, it just totally worked because you're there and you're like, okay, this is the last shot of the film. Here we go. (laughs) Going off in the sunset. And then it just like, it feels like a mistake. Like I saw it in a full theater and everyone's like, like it just feels like a mistake. And then it like lands and they're like, Oh yeah, that is a better shot. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> and that's how it ends. And you know, Hitchcock and M Night and all these different guys like make cameos in their movies. Spielberg never does anything like that. Yeah, and it's the closest to where it's like, okay, yeah, there is a man controlling the camera, and it's almost like a baseball player just walking up and it, tipping his hat for sure. To the crowd is it, what it felt like to me. It yeah. bugged me at first, and then I thought about it on the drive home from the theater. I'm like, okay, actually, I like that. I, I, I think. Um, cause like I said, I just felt like it was too much of like a joke at the it end. It is like a, yeah, it, it, After it this is serious heavy movie and you're yeah. like, okay, I did. I chuckled as well. And then I was like, oh, why, why did you do that? But okay. Okay. And then I started thinking about it more. I'm like, no, actually it, this is a story of his life, you right. know? And it just felt like him being like, I'm here the whole time. I've been here the whole time telling my story. It, I feel like, like you said, it's, it is like a cameo almost. I feel like that shot, and for people who aren't aware of what we're talking about, at, at, at the very end, he's walking off across the lot, and basically the horizon line is right in the dead center of the frame <laughs> as he w- walks across the lot, and then as the, it's like about ready to cut, and the camera like jiggles and resets, and yeah. like tilts up so that the horizon line is is lower, holds on that for like a second, and then cuts to black. I think if we're viewing this movie as a story about Spielberg and his parents, then that feels then that shot feels weird and that shot feels out of place and is a joke right. in a movie that didn't need a joke at the end. But if we're viewing this movie as this sort of Spielbergian origin story for right. what made an artist, then it's the perfect shot to end the movie. S- signing the corner of the of uh, of the painting it, that it's it's, that it's so like memorable a like if you ask me to give like the most famous last shots like i'm gonna remember this one forever and just like okay this is a last shot that will just burn in my mind you know and this is the guy who makes the great indiana jones riding off in the sunset or even poltergeist one of my favorite last shots where they take the tv out of the hotel room and the tv just stands on the balcony um it's that level of shot where it's just like it's so clear it's so memorable Okay, so we've talked around this movie a whole bunch. I kind of want to get to your guys' final arguments of, like, what is the meaning of this movie? What is the meaning of the Fablemans? Andrew, I'll start with you. What's the meaning of this movie? So, to me, the meaning of the movie comes in a single shot in a scene that we didn't talk about. And that is when his parents are announcing the divorce to the family and and all of his sisters, who, by the way, give an amazing performance. Right. Like those could have been throwaway characters and those actors who I've never seen in anything before. Those those girls um, like they're holding their own against world class actors like all the performances in this movie. P.S. are just like perfect. Um, Love them all. But they're all of the sisters are like breaking down. It's this huge like family drama scene of they're arguing about like, you know, whose fault it is that, that this divorce is happening. And sisters are pointing f- fingers at different different parents and everyone's yelling. And there's this shot of Spielberg imagining himself. Basically, it's a shot of the mirror of him just like with the camera filming the scene. And he's not filming the scene, but he envisions himself for yep. a moment. And to me, that is the meaning of this movie. Yeah. Of. When you become a storyteller, when you become an artist, it's 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 the realization of the Judd Hirsch speech, 
which is in one of the most important dramatic moments of your life relationally, your brain is going to say, damn, this is a good movie scene. Yeah. Right. Um, and so in this moment where his family is literally falling apart, it is the moment for him to be completely engaged with his family. His brain is thinking about how would I film this scene? And I'm like, that is what it feels like to be a filmmaker, to be a storyteller. You know, like I can't tell you the number of times or maybe I've been in an argument or been in a family situation that's super tense and my brain starts going, how would I write this in a screenplay? Mm. Right. Which is wildly inappropriate right like but that's what happens to artists and i think that's what this movie is saying is not only the origin story of what made an artist but what what it is like to be one while also in relationship with people and not being judgmental about that right not not necessarily there's there's no comeuppance for the fact that occasionally his brain is not fully engaged with the people around him um, Andrew, and I love. That. I just, I just want to say that's in like your top five meaning of this movie answers. Like that's really, really good, <laughs> powerful <laughs> way to answer what the meaning of this movie is. Luke, what do you got? What's the yeah, meaning of this movie to you? Honestly, um, it's it's similar to what Andrew's saying. I think the the fact that we pull off of our experiences, right? We we pull from our experiences as storytellers, as filmmakers those make the best stories, the things that we have lived through, the, the events that, um, that made an impact on us, whether positive, negative, whatever it is, those are the things that are formative to how we see the world and how we view the world. And I think that's, that's for me, that's part one. The other part, see, I saw that scene a little bit differently, Andrew. I saw him going to immediately go into his room to edit because that's what his therapy was. That was the thing that helped him get through the hard times was his art. That was the thing that he always, in fact, that was instilled in him from his mother. Oh, he needs therapy. Make a film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whether that's to process that, that terrifying scene. And so he could kind of get through that or just to the fact that he, um, he used art to get through those moments in life. Sure. And his and his sister comes in and is mad at him right. for doing this thing because she she doesn't understand it. It's not how her brain works. And 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 what he what he says at the end, I, I love it. He's like, I just need you to watch this with me. And she doesn't want right. to. And then she does. And that is how like in that relationship, he's like, I just need you with me right, right. now. That's how I'm going to get through this is for you to be with me while we're focused on this on this other thing for a, a second. Yeah. And it's not what she needs, but it's it's what he needs. And then that relationship has a moment together. It's it's very real for those of us that kind of work that way. And um, I've, I've loved it. So, Luke, that was also a really good answer. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, therapy. And even this was like a way for him to process that trauma. I think it's powerful. And I think that's ultimately like both of your answers are what the meaning of this movie is. What I love about it is there's a documentary on Spielberg you can watch on HBO. It's fantastic. There's books that you can read all about him and his life and his experiences and the things that he did on set, and they're so insightful. But there's nothing that you can have that makes you feel what his feelings were growing up, what these core experiences were that make him who he was, like a movie. 
And I think, how cool is it that one of our greatest storytellers, wherever you rank him on the list, it doesn't matter. He's one of our greatest storytellers. And he's really doing something introspective, but not something that's just like, oh, biography and I'm going to tell you. He's just like, I'm going to use all the tools in my tool shed with 50 years of filmmaking to tell you a story of who I am, how I tick, and why it matters. And I just think what a gift that this movie is for him to use all these powerful tools and create these memories, these scenes, these moments that are so powerful and so interesting. And I'm I'm here for it. I'm here for these directors, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, all these different guys who are making something personal, but that is still a story. That isn't just a series of facts and information, but it's all these things that actually emote into something greater. And that's what I love about this movie. And that's the meaning of it to me. For sure. It's the encapsulation of that one line by Paul Dano in 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 the kitchen of it doesn't matter if it's if it's a lie, if it's true or not. It's a story. Right. And that story is is the truth because of the emotion and the and what it reveals. Um, That's what this this, you know, movie is, is it's Spielberg's story, whether or not it's biographically accurate. You know, that's exactly right. We did it, fellas. We made it to the end of the podcast. Luke, first show you here. Great job. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Andrew, great job as always. Uh, Glad and listeners, glad you're all listening. We'll talk to you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.